Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Lauren Foster and this is Take 15, the podcast series where we bring you 15-minute conversations with leading practitioners on timely topics. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin, blockchain, systemic thinking, and the Byzantine General's problem. And I'm delighted to have Caitlin Long as my guest here. Caitlin is a 22-year Wall Street veteran who's been active with Bitcoin since 2012. As co-founder of the Wyoming Blockchain Coalition, she helped drive Wyoming's trailblazing blockchain legislation. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank Thanks you. so much for being here. My so uh, last week, October 31st, which is actually Halloween, uh, marked 10 years since someone by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto published a paper titled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Uh, it went live on January 3rd, 2009. So over the past decade, Bitcoin has seen many booms and busts, but it's still with us. So most of our listeners, I presume, will have heard of Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, but let's just start with a quick level set. So for the uninitiated, um, what is blockchain? Blockchain is just a new type of database. That's all it is. But it's a very special type of database that allows multiple parties to see the same data at the same time and trust that it's valid. I like to analogize it to Google Docs because most people have worked in some sort of uh, a, a, a jointly working database like that where multiple parties can share the same document and can edit it together in real time and see their parties, their counterparties' edits. The difference is, though, a blockchain is Google Docs without Google. The challenge with Google Docs is Google owns that data and you wouldn't know if that data had been tampered with. But in a blockchain, Everybody owns the data. All the network participants own the data. They can see in real time that it's being updated and they can trust that it's valid because it's anchored by math. So talk to us a little bit about uh, what problems or problem uh, blockchain technology solves. To me, the biggest one is simply the duplication and reconciliation of data. That's at a practical level what it solves. And of course, the financial services industry is fraught with that. Uh, because we don't trust our counterparties, we keep our own copies of data and we reconcile. At a philosophical level, though, I think the problem it really solves is the problem of trust. What we've done in order to establish trust is create third-party intermediaries. We pay lawyers, we pay auditors, we pay accountants, we pay custodians, fiduciaries, county clerks, deed recorders, all of the above. Uh, in order to create trust because we don't have a, a, a way to do it through our databases. And now with blockchain, we do have a way to create trust through the databases and therefore all of that infrastructure may become redundant. So I'm wondering, say you're out at a dinner party and you mentioned that you work in blockchain, um, what kind of responses do you get and what kind of misconceptions do you hear? And perhaps you can walk us through some of those sort of common myths versus the reality. Sure. Uh, well, now a lot of people are interested in it, especially at the end of last year, of course, when it was in its bubble. A lot of people were asking, how do I get involved? And, and we're still hearing that. But uh, in this period where the price has, cor has corrected and yet we're seeing a big increase in institutional adoption, uh, with Yale having uh, gotten in and Harvard, um, as well as Fidelity announcing an institutional custody platform and, and, and some trading software, we're now starting to see real legacy Wall Street start to pay a lot more of attention to it. Um, I would say the biggest misconception is 
is first of all that it's all a bunch of uh, dark web users and drug addicts and the like. There has been some of that, no question. But the honest truth is that the vast majority of transactions on these networks are legitimate and there are very real businesses that are being built on them. Uh, and another misconception is that they're, 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 they've been hacked. A lot of folks will say, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain has been hacked. I keep reading about the hacks. Actually, in fact, no. The Bitcoin blockchain itself has never been hacked in 10 years. Successfully, no one has, has hacked it. And that's a, it's an amazing fact when you realize it has no firewall. It's living out there in the wilds of the internet with no firewall, and yet no one's been able to successfully hack it. Where the hacks have happened is in applications that were built on top of that base Bitcoin blockchain layer. And those are just like any other web-based company. Those, those applications can be hacked, and many of them have been. And we've, we've, we've read about them in the newspaper, but unfortunately, a lot of the, the press hasn't made that important distinction. The base blockchain layer itself has never been hacked. No one's been able to break into it and change history. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, what is your estimation about the timeline in which blockchain is adopted in earnest in the financial system? I would say it's it's hap it, it, it's it's probably taking it certainly is taking slower um, more time than a lot of folks in the early years anticipated that it would, but it, it's the Bill Gates quotation I may misquote him, but the the sense here was you tend to underestimate sorry overestimate the amount of change that happens in the next twelve months, but underestimate the amount of change that's going to happen in the next twenty years, and I think that that's accurate here as well. Um, once it gets going, I think it'll get going very quickly. And we are now seeing securities being issued in crypto form. In other words, natively blockchain on these blockchain settlement and clearing systems in lieu of the traditional indirect ownership form of securities that we're all so used to. Or maybe when I say we're all so used to, I worked for 16 years on Wall Street before I dug into it and really figured out how the clearing and settlement systems worked. Uh, and then the next six years, I was spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to make sure I didn't have problems for my clients because of the problems that are inherent in the, in the clearing and settlement system. I discovered unauthorized securities lending in one case that could not have been discoverable by looking at a brokerage statement. And, and uh, so I learned I can't trust my brokerage statement because I don't know what's going on behind the scenes in the omnibus accounts. And to me, these, these blockchain-based systems are so far superior in terms of books and record keeping. It's so much fairer to the ultimate end investor because they know that the books and records are accurate and they actually own the shares they think they own. So you mentioned earlier the bubble. There's been sort of, you know, wild ups and downs. And how do investors get comfortable with crypto um, given the un unproven and it's very uh, volatile? Well, I notice I haven't talked much about the price, uh, and we just got done with a presentation to the CFA Institute's Equity Research Conference. I didn't even talk about the price at all. To me, this is a clearing and settlement system that's far superior for regular assets that can be issued in, the, in this form. So regular securities, common stocks, bonds. And the like, and and all kinds of all, all you know all, everything in between securitizations, loans, um, they, they, mortgages. They can all be issued in this form. Um, and so I th actually think price is a, is is the least interesting part of the crypto universe. I do pay attention to it because it does help me understand when 
Bitcoin and other crypto assets will become useful for institu institutional payments. And as we've seen the bid offer spreads come down and liquidity increase, that means that companies that have to send money around the world and have not had very attractive alternatives in some countries that don't have well-developed banking systems, they can and are using Bitcoin uh, as an intermediary currency for foreign exchange where they wouldn't actually touch the Bitcoin. They're just using an intermediary that, that arranges the transactions for them and they'll exchange one fiat currency for another, but it just goes through Bitcoin. Let's talk a little bit about the pace of investments in cryptocurrencies or crypto funds um, at some of the major US endowments. Do you think this is a sign of the asset class's growing acceptance among institutional investors? Oh, yes. Uh, when, when Yale Endowment came out and announced that it had participated in the first $400 million institutional crypto fund, uh, that was just, it happened in June, but it was announced in September, confirmed. Uh, boy, I knew as soon as that, that news hit that that would wake up a lot of institutional investors, particularly the pensions and endowments and foundations that are looking for non-correlated asset classes. And uh, obviously, now I'm back to, the, to, to mentioning the price. With the price correction that has happened, it is, and in spite of the fact that all the infrastructure that's being built, it is an interesting time for institutional investors to look at and, uh, and determine if they, if they are going to be fast followers or late adopters. And um, the fact that there are two institutional crypto funds, both of which were filled very quickly and have closed, uh, it leaves an interesting opening in the in the market for more crypto institutional quality crypto funds to 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 come into the market, and I think you'll see more of those relatively soon. Interesting. Where do we stand on custody rules for crypto assets? It's an interesting question because uh, most of the securities regulators, including the SEC here in the U.S., require registered investment advisors and investment managers to to hold their assets and a third party independent of the investment manager. And the interesting question is, if you look at the history of those rules, they were there to make sure that the broker or, or investment advisor was not using the customer's assets in a way that the customer had not given permission for. And um, the interesting point about blockchain is, they wouldn't be able to do that uh, without the customer knowing. So are these custody rules actually necessary, given that blockchain gives perfect transparency and the SEC itself, if it wanted to audit, could very easily go look at the blockchain. But that said, a lot of people are not comfortable owning their own bearer instruments because of the, the fact that if they lose them, the assets are gone. And so there will be, I think, institutional custody um, arrangements, but there's some very interesting technology that is available thanks to blockchain. Something called multi-signature technology would require multiple digital signatures in order for the assets to be moved. So perhaps both the custodian and the asset manager and the end customer could all have to provide a digital signature in order for the assets to move. So for, for, for uh, the CFA audience, it would be the portfolio manager entering in instructions and signing it with a private key. Uh, and then the asset trans the trade wouldn't happen until the custodian also signs with that private key. That's the sort of thing that can help to reduce the, the risk of, of loss of the asset, but also still satisfy the custody rule and, and the desire 
on the part of investors to be able to have a third party holding their assets. I raise an interesting question in that regard, though, which is for the big fiduciary asset managers, the very large ones, if you don't custody your own digital assets the way you used to custody paper stock certificates when everything was in paper form, are you not just trading one agency problem for another? And I suspect that over time, a lot of these big institutional investors will custody their own digital assets. They've, they did it 40 years ago when everything was in paper form and then they had a vault. The insurance companies, all of them, the old ones still have um, vaults in their basement, even though they don't keep their, their bonds in their, uh, in their vaults anymore. Everything's, everything's electronic. Okay. Uh, what's the current state of tokenized securities? We're starting to see the security tokens issued. It's an interesting uh, question. You asked about tokenized securities. There are two different forms of, of crypto tokens, if you will, for the securities arena. One is you could just create a depository receipt. Citigroup is creating depository receipts in crypto form. And you could put a share of Apple stock in a depository receipt and effectively create a crypto version of an Apple share of stock. Or you could actually have that security issued directly on a blockchain. The latter is more interesting because then it's never touching the legacy system and you get all the benefits of instant settlement, no counterparty risk and the like. Um, but the interesting, um, uh, the, right now we haven't seen traditional securities issuers yet issuing securities in token form. We are seeing it start to happen. Uh, the World Bank issued the first publicly issued uh, bond on a blockchain this fall in Australia. Uh, I think Microsoft was involved in, in that. Uh, and we just saw a private bond issued in Canada to institutional investors last week. Uh, obviously, Overstock.com has now done three um, um, registered uh, token offerings. One, in, one, was a, uh, one was a bond, one was a preferred share, and another was a utility token for the security token broker-dealer called T0 that it's building. So we've now seen the early examples that are working out the kinks. Uh, it's taken longer, admittedly, than, than a lot of us bulls had hoped that it would. But I think what will happen is it will take longer, but yet when the system, when you start to see more institutional issuers issuing them, uh, you'll see the system transfer over fairly quickly, especially now that institutional investors are solving the custody question. We're going to shift gear just a little bit. Sure. Uh, you're a proponent of systemic thinking, yes. and Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of Bitcoin, is one of the most important systemic thinkers of our time. So tell us, what is a systemic thinker, and how does one become one? Great question. Thank you for asking that. I think that systemic thinkers are those that can operate across different verticals, if you will, specialties of skill sets, a polymath, if you will, someone who is able to put puzzle pieces together by thinking, seeing the forest through the trees. Uh, and what's the reason I, I talk about Satoshi as being a systemic thinker is because whoever Satoshi is or was, he, she, or they solved a computer science problem by using economics. And what's funny is the computer science industry had been arguing over this computer science problem for decades and had concluded that it was not solvable. And here comes somebody who brings in economic incentives and behavioral incentives into a system 
And everyone now acknowledges that that this problem that was previously considered unsolved has now been solved. Perhaps if the computer scientists had been talking to economists and behavioral scientists earlier, that it wouldn't have taken so long to solve this problem. And is that the Byzantine general's problem? Yes, or? indeed. And that that is the the the. Basically, it's a question. They use the the um, analogy of generals on a Byzantine battlefield sending messages to each other, and the question is. How does the general know that when the message has been received that it wasn't tampered with because it's moved across space and time? And data moves across space and time. So this is why the computer scientists called it that. Um, and they needed to know that it hadn't been tampered with when it moved across space and time. That's a very simplistic way of, of, uh, of posing the problem. But this is what Satoshi solved by making it more expensive to change that data than the person who changes it would gain from changing that data. And so that asymmetry was what solved this problem. And it was a simple, very simple, a lot of solutions to problems are amazingly simple when you see them in hindsight. This was a very simple solution to this problem, very complex application to get there, but very simple at a, at a high level. And it took somebody who could put these puzzle pieces together. Obviously, Satoshi had tremendous background in cryptography and computer science distributed systems, but also clearly understood monetary history and, and game theory and economic incentives as well. It's been a fascinating conversation, Caitlin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank and thank you also to our listeners. If you want to subscribe, you can now find us at iHeartRadio in addition to iTunes and our CFA Institute member app. Thank you for listening. Copyright 2019, all rights reserved. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.